1: We have an interview that I highly prize with award-winning journalist and journalism professor Carl Grossman. He shares insights on the Indian Point Closure Agreement, the hidden manipulation tactics of the Institute of Nuclear Power Operators, and gives us examples of how activists have successfully scuttled nuclear industry plans in the past. Great modeling of tactics and strategies from one of our movement's best minds. Plus... Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, Nuclear Reactor Duck and Cover Report, based on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's weekly event reports, the European Report with Sean McGee, and more honest nuclear information than Adele was able to sing about on the Grammys. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 14, 2017. Happy Valentine's Day. And here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out in the U.S. this week with nuclear hot seat,
0: nuclear hot seat,
1: nuclear hot seat. Not nuts of the week. Hike. It's a fake pass. No, it's a faux pas with the nuclear football. That's right, the briefcase that carries all the codes that our current president or any president needs to launch a nuclear attack in four minutes with no way of being contradicted got to pose for pictures at Mar-a-Lago Resort in Palm Beach, Florida. That's because Trump was there and mar lago member Richard Diagazio decided that he really wanted to take selfies with the nuclear football and the poor guy who was guarding it. Nothing like a good old boy posing next to a satchel that holds the capability of launching a nuclear war. Then he posted the pics and wrote, "'This is Rick. He carries the football, the nuclear football.'" It's a briefcase, its contents of which are used by the presidents of the United States to authorize a nuclear attack. It is held by an aide-de-camp, and Rick is the man. Well, probably not anymore. Not after a security breach like that. But you can't blame Rick, because he's just the fall guy. In an unsecured location with the nuclear launch codes and pictures on social media. And that's why, for even making this situation possible, you, yes, you, Donald J. Trump, are this week's... Nuclear hot seat,
2: none that's out of the week.
1: Makes me wonder if there is a hidden reason why every aide-de-camp carrying the nuclear football whose picture I have ever seen, such as in the background of the inauguration, is either African-American or a woman. Hmm... In Oklahoma, a judge has issued a temporary restraining order to halt Sequoia Fuels' plans to bury radioactive waste at its plant in Gore, Oklahoma. The ruling is a victory for the Cherokee Nation and the state of Oklahoma, which have argued that the waste should be removed off-site, which is what Sequoia Falls agreed to in 2004, spending up to $3.5 million to move the waste and put it somewhere, who knows where, Instead, Sequoia notified the Cherokee Nation this past January that the most heavily contaminated material on the site was being planned to be buried on their land until the judge stopped it. Thank you, Judge. More than 70 years after the detonation of the first atomic bomb, the Trinity test, residents of southern New Mexico who were unwittingly exposed to the fallout, as well as their descendants and advocates, have released a new report that details the decades of illnesses and deaths they believe were caused by the Trinity site test. The Health Impact Assessment, titled Unwilling, Unknowing, and Uncompensated, focuses on four ways that families have been affected by the Manhattan Project blast in 1945. Generations of illnesses and deaths, lack of access to health care, economic struggles, and fears of severe health problems for future generations. Interesting story. We'll link to it on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 295. Time now for the Nuclear Reactor Cover report on Thursday, February 9. Pilgrim Power Station in Massachusetts shut down because a blizzard was bearing down on it. But hey, the plant had only been operating at 30 percent of capacity since Monday, February 6 after officials found seawater leaking into one of the plant's condenser tubes. Previous preemptive shutdowns occurred in February of 2015 and 2016, so this is three in a row. And the facility will use the downtime to plug some of the 35,000 condenser tubes, quote, to prevent this type of issue in the future. One only hopes. <coughs> At Dresden in Illinois on February 8th, a technical support center emergency ventilation system became inoperable, which represents a major loss of emergency assessment capability, off-site response capability, or off-site communications ability. At Cook in Michigan on February 3rd, unanalyzed condition due to unaccounted loads in safe shutdown analysis. This is associated with 26 cables routed through multiple fire zones in the turbine building, and both Units 1 and 2 have rooms that have the potential to be affected from a fire event as a result. <laughs> Hatch in Georgia on February 8th, high-pressure coolant injection system inoperable due to degraded DC-2AC inverter which could have prevented fulfillment of a safety function needed to mitigate the consequences of an accident. (laughs) February 13, at LaSalle in Illinois, automatic reactor scram, an emergency shutdown slamming on the brakes from 100 to 0. And Watts Bar in Tennessee on February 8th had something that I still can't figure out after multiple readings, so I'll spare you. (laughs) Duck! In Japan, there are two conflicting campaigns one to expand the thyroid tests on downwind victims from the Fukushima nuclear disaster, and another by the pro-nuclear lobby to reduce the existing tests. In the meantime, as of December, we learned that at least one child's thyroid cancer has spread to the lungs because the thyroid cancer had not been dealt with quickly enough. At the same time, a new paper accepted by the Endocrine Journal and written by Dr. Tanako from Osaka University Graduate School of Medicine supports the pro-nuclear lobby's reduction in thyroid testing. We'll have a link to Sean McGee's article on this, including quotes against the study by Professor Toshihide Tsuda, Professor Christopher Busby, and Professor Joe Mangano. We'll give you a link to it as well. Also a link to Dr. Helen Caldicott's brilliant article on the way the Fukushima nuclear meltdown continues unabated, where she goes through exactly what's happening with the radiation levels and spells out exactly what the world continues to be facing from the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Another link on our website. In Taiwan, nuclear-free advocates have organized three parades in a national protest action set for March 11 in Taipei and two other cities. Under the title Nuclear Go Zero, the government will be urged to accelerate efforts to realize its campaign promise to replace existing energy sources with green ones, to commission three operating nuclear power plants as scheduled, and to find the best solution for the disposal of nuclear waste. Now, here's the European report with Sean McGee reporting from Ireland.
2: Following the near nuclear miss in France's EDF Flammaville plant this week, we can see that luckily there has been no issue with the actual releases from the plant in terms of radiation. Now there was an off-gassing which happened later that night or early morning and we did see some measurements on the Eurdep radiation monitoring of Europe. These were very small increases and nothing to worry about. More interestingly was the EDF response in switching off the monitoring devices from 10.30 when the accident happened in the morning and they switched them back on around 12.30 and then switched off the monitoring system again for some hours. The problem with that is the EURDEP system is designed for the emergency services and had there been a meltdown or large accident these emergency services would not have been able to access your DEP to find out what was going on, and I'll link to the articles concerning this. The CEO of Toshiba, who resigned today, and following that, Westinghouse has also said that they may be forced out of the nuclear plant construction business, and Bloomberg's business analyst, Chris Gadomsky, said that off the actual discussions he was having with the Westinghouse officials, quote, they were kind of really scared and concerned what the implications of this whole unravelling is going to be, unquote. Staying with the financial situation in Europe, Westinghouse and also Toshiba... The funding for UK nuclear new bills looks like it will be cut and there are calls for the UK government to actually put taxpayers' money and fill in the funding gap. But there are some real issues with this, especially in the UK. And of course, this affects America and other new bills around the world. Now, the UK, if it's going to put money into subsidise the nuclear new bills and replace Toshiba's funding and the Westinghouse knowledge, then what we'll see is a perfect storm in the UK because the UK has pulled out of Euratom and Brexit is heading our way. So, what will happen there? we will see is the UK will replace the Toshiba technical knowledge, and that will have to be done by funding and training students based in the UK, and it means the subsidy will also have to include academic funding losses from the Horizon 2020 European Union Fund, which comes to some £14.6 The injection into UK academic institutions will even have to be larger because of the need for new and larger physics departments and related departments to do with the nuclear new bills. So the UK may balk at investing in new bills because of the extra costs that they will have to replace and knowledge base as well. Now the government, if it wants to have a successful nuclear programme, will have to invest billions over the actual funding shortfall that this Toshiba situation represents. So if they just want to do a temporary bailout to help the investors, this would be a very bad thing because it would mean that nuclear new bills would fail. In other news in Europe, there is a big challenge to the Russian nuclear bills in the Eastern European countries, uh, such as PAX-2 in Hungary. The challenge is coming from the EU, as we've reported in the past. But a new report came out from Bologna, which says that the actual reactor that they want to put into Europe has some serious flaws. And in fact, the Russians have been trying to hide this fact. And in my last report, I will come back to the UK again. And this does actually have an effect on the the UK's interaction with other countries around the world. The story involves a report which is entitled UK nuclear safety regulations play too low a value on human life and is reported on by a university in the UK. Professor Philip Thomas from Bristol University, head of risk management, uh, which covers all areas of industry, is saying, quote, It is difficult to see how any safety case presented from now on that relies in any way upon the UK VPF, whether on the roads, the railways or in the nuclear industry, such as the new nuclear power station at Hinkley Point C in Somerset, could stand up to test in court. More modern and accurate methods exist, but the regulators are not using them. This is Sean McGee, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat from Ireland.
1: Thank you, Sean. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, as I'm recording this, today is Valentine's Day, and hearts have a lot to do with the nuclear issue. No, not because radioactive cesium attacks heart muscle. This is about Nuclear Hot Seat, getting to the heart of a wide range of nuclear issues to bring you verifiable news, interviews with genuine experts, and as much humor as I can squeeze out of this depressing subject matter. So have a heart and support our heart by donating to Nuclear Hot Seat for the price of a cup of coffee. You can provide the funds that support this show in its ever-expanding quest for the truth about all things nuclear. We make it easy for you to send just $5 to support our work. Go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, and click on the big red Donate button. Be this a one-time boost or the start of a recurring monthly donation, take heart from the fact that whatever you can do to help support the work of Nuclear Hot Seat really does make a difference. And for that, you have my heartfelt thanks. I'm so excited to be sharing this interview with you. Carl Grossman is a professor of journalism at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury, as well as an award-winning investigative reporter with more than 40 years of experience. Carl is truly our movement's eminence grise, or Great Gray Eminence. He knows the footnotes and where all the metaphoric bodies are buried. He dug up a few and we spoke on January 19, 2017. Carl Grossman, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat.
3: A pleasure, Libby, anytime.
0: There is now in place an agreement regarding Indian Point and its planned closure, though not immediately. I have expressed concerns about this agreement before on the show, but I'd like to know first, from your perspective, what's good about the plan to shut down Indian Point as it currently stands?
3: These are two aged, problem-plagued, beyond disasters waiting to happen. These plants have been leaking tritium into the underground water table, into the Hudson River as Paul Gallais, he's the president of uh, Riverkeeper, and they were one of the parties to the agreement with the state of New York. He describes the Indian Point plants as the biggest existential threat in the region. I mean, you're talking about these two problematic, as too soft a word, nuclear plants, 26 miles from the New York City line, uh, 30 miles from Times Square, you have over 20 million people within 50 miles of these nuclear plants. And the deal that's been made, the agreement that's been struck, would have the plants close. I mean, I wish it could be this afternoon, but the arrangement is that Indian Point 2 will close in uh, April of 2020, which is three years away, and Indian Point 3 by the end of April 2021. And I've looked through the agreement. In fact, it's on both the Riverkeeper's website and Governor Andrew Cuomo's website. And it's a very elaborate and comprehensive agreement, which, among other things, provides that the workers of Energy, this is the owner of the facility, a New Orleans based company, the workers could get retrained in, and the state would provide the retraining in solar and wind and other safe energy technologies, I think it's a good agreement. There is an escape clause, uh, which provides that if there is an emergency, a war, a terrorist attack, this sort of thing, if the state agrees, and it's a very complicated procedure here, it isn't uh, an automatic yes that energy will say in a few years, we have an emergency, we want to continue to run these plants. If there's an emergency, the plans can continue to run, Two more years each, but that's it. So I think, on balance, considering the enormous danger these two nuclear plants pose, their record, which has been absolutely abysmal and continues to be abysmal. In fact, my dear friend Harvey Wasserman says they're really not disasters waiting to happen, they're disasters that are happening and have been happening for many years. So I think this is good news the plants are, well, they've been operating really without licenses. They've gone beyond the 40-year lifetime, operating lifetimes that nuclear plants were seen as happening. And Energy had been getting ready to extend or try to get the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is, in fact, the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission. I mean, it says yes to whatever the nuclear industry has ever wanted, never turned down a an application for a construction or operating license of any nuclear plant anywhere, anytime, has already given, well, at this point, over 85 of the nuclear plants in the country. There's 99 operating today, 20-year extensions, so they could go for 60 years, and that's what Entergy wanted. So you have this specter of these two nuclear plants going for 60 years, and in fact, there's an effort by the nuclear industry with support, it was seen from the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission, to allow nuclear plants to run for 80 years, even though a very careful analysis was done way back in terms of how long a nuclear plant could operate, considering irradiation, of particularly its metal components, the embrittlement and so forth, and they said 40, that's said 40, but the nuclear industry really, well, asking for disaster, has been pushing successfully to allow the nuclear plants to go for 60, and again, uh, on the table now is 80. Imagine taking an 80-year-old car on of interstate and running it fast. One of the things that the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission has also done when it does this extension of these operating licenses is to uprate the nuclear plants, to let them run hotter and harder to produce more electricity. So it's like taking an 80-year-old car on the interstate and and running it at 90 miles an hour. I mean, again, asking for uh, catastrophe, asking for disaster. So in light of all this, the closure, even though it's three and then four years away, of the Indian Point plants is, in my judgment, good news. That's good to know
0: because in the initial materials that came out, I saw, first of all, three to four years. Well, you know, it's better than a kick in the rear, but at the same time it's still three to four years of operation of plants that are already shown to be degraded. And then I saw the loophole to allow the extension by reasons of war, sudden increase in electrical demand or shortage of electric energy, which seemed to me rather vague and undefined. Are you saying that there is a much more specific definition of those, or are they the kind of things where, by reason of war, when are we not at war? Electrical demand, is there a definition of what would make that a different electrical demand or a shortage of electrical energy? Again, anything specific that can be used to deny an arbitrary extension of their operating life?
3: Well, war generally, documents I've seen, is not elaborated on. It's like uh, the line that you see sometimes in legal documents, an act of God and so forth. Uh, Again, the checks on the escape clause are, I think, pretty solid, I think the attorneys here uh, for Riverkeeper, the other environmental and safe energy groups involved, the Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, and his people were up to their neck in this agreement, the governor's office and so forth. I think they've crafted a very careful agreement. As to the issue of energy supply, that's what some of the pro-nucers, since the agreement was announced on January 9th, have been uh, pointing to. Where are we going to get the electricity to replace that generated by Indian Point? But simultaneously, what Governor Cuomo has been doing, uh, and this has been a move, been on for a couple of years in this area, is promoting, well, particularly offshore wind, promoting safe green energy, period. But offshore wind is the big thing along the Atlantic coast. And just uh, well, a few weeks ago, just in December, the first wind farm, in America, Offshore Wind Farm began operations east of Long Island off Block Island. And Cuomo, when we're talking recent days, has been saying he wants to see the Long Island Power Authority give the okay for this company called Deepwater Wind, which constructed the first offshore wind farm that I mentioned, five wind turbines, to go ahead with a far bigger project southeast of Long Island, Deepwater Wind would like to have another project going, another big project going off New Jersey, south of New York City. The Long Island Power Authority just gave the okay for a Norwegian company called Soltail to construct a, a major wind farm off Jones Beach. People might be familiar with it. That's sort of central Long Island. Meanwhile, energy efficiency has brought down the uses of electricity in this area. I think that the scare that the pro-nukers would put into us that we need the 2,000 megawatts that these two Indian Point plants provide will vanish, particularly as, as solar continues to spread. I mean, I'm talking to you today, Libby, from an old New England saltbox house that I live in with my wife. We've been blessed with a large roof to put many photovoltaic panels, I go outside, and on most days... I see the meter of the Long Island Power Authority going backwards because the panels are producing more electricity than we use. There's thermal panels up on my roof, too, and what's happened in my little house has been happening all over this region. In fact, it's been happening all over this country, particularly as the price of solar panels has just gone downward and their efficiency. There was a company last year that just announced 36% efficiency. I mean, the solar panels that NASA has put up in space to power satellites or the International Space Station, they get to around 24%, 25%. So you see great gains in efficiency. So in terms of alternate energy in regards to Indian Point, I think we'll have it. And I think with the end of Indian Point, we can be on the trail of having... Having energy we can live with.
0: That isn't going to kill us.
3: That's the thing. I just did a column, which will be running in, in Long Island newspapers and elsewhere, where I cite that quote from before about Galay talking about this being an existential threat, the biggest existential threat in the region. And I go on to say that a report, well, this isn't a report everybody should see, and it's online. It's called Calculation of Reactor Accident Consequences, or it's acronym CRAC2. It was done by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission at Sandia National Laboratories, where they love nuclear technology. And they look at every nuclear plant in the United States and consider the consequences of a core meltdown with breach of containment, a China syndrome accident. And in terms of the Indian Point Plans, just let me read these numbers. And these aren't numbers. These are people and their lives. Peak early fatalities, Indian Point, to 46,000. And, again, this is Sandia National Laboratories run by the Department of Energy. I think that's an underestimate. Peak early injuries, 141,000. Peak cancer deaths, 13,000. That's Scaled low. cost in billions, $274 billion, and that is, and the report notes this, the report was first put out in 1982, and this is this $274 billion, $1980, dollars, so we're talking about $1 trillion in scale cost, and the report says they consider, under scale cost, lost wages, relocation expenses, decontamination costs, lost property, and a portion of the U.S. basically rendered uninhabitable because of radioactivity. Indian Point 3, the number is about the same. 50,000 peak early fatalities, uh, 167,000 peak early injuries, peak cancer deaths, 14,000 scale, cost course, in billions, 314 billion, which would be, again, we're talking a trillion, trillion. I mean, this is what we're dealing with when we're talking about nuclear power. These are people's lives that would be ended. These would be people left with injuries and cancer. And it would be part of the planet, a big part of the planet, left in ruins. And if the wind would be blowing from the north, as it often does, particularly like now in the winter, that radioactivity from those two Indian Point plants would head, as I say, Times Square is 30 miles to the south. It would head to where millions of people, millions of people live. Most of where I live on Long Island, much of where I live on Long Island, the western half of Long Island, uh, would be in the Plume Pathway. And millions of people live on Long Island, and Brooklyn and Queens often aren't considered part of Long Island. They're two boroughs in New York City. But they're part of Long Island. And we're talking, Libby, of a nuclear facility. It represents a lethal danger, a mortal danger, to millions of people. It should never have been built. In fact, in my judgment, no nuclear plant should ever have been built.
0: That brings us to the article that you just published on Informable.com, where you interviewed a nuclear engineer about Indian Point and the agreement. This is a man with more than 30 years' experience in the field. What were some of the things that he said about Indian Point in particular or nuclear energy in general?
3: Yeah, well, that that was an amazing interview because I've I've dealt with, as a journalist, with the issues of nuclear power for 40 years. And this fellow calls me up, and uh, he wanted to talk about the New York Times had just began reporting on a potential agreement to close the plant's. And he called me up in connection with that, and he said, Mr. Grossman, I'd like to provide you with information. I can't allow my name to go public. I'm very concerned about the consequences, the retribution that might be taken against me, but I've worked 30 years in the business, so let me mention some things to you. And he did, and from a journalistic perspective, and I'm a professor of journalism as well as an active journalist. It's kind of odd to um, base a story on a an unnamed source, but in this situation, here was a fellow with information which I felt just needed so desperately to be conveyed so people know it. So the piece, an informable, it also ran in Nation of Change, Op-Ed News, uh, Counterpunch, and so forth. It ran, thankfully, widely. For example, he told me about the... In report system, he, he explained that right after the Three Mile Island uh, accident in 79, the nuclear industry got together and formed the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations. And what that involves is having nuclear operators through the country write reports, and they're coded by color, yellow and green and red, about problematic issues at a nuclear plant to share the information so people can be and the nuclear industry prepared to do something about what's occurring. And he said the most serious of the reports is Code Red, which involves a problem that could have led to a core meltdown. He said he's seen 100 of them.
0: Is that 100 of them for Indian Point? or Oh,
3: no, no, Uh, 100 of them in his work, Not, not Indian Point. And he said it's outrageous that the public doesn't see these reports. Yellow, red, green, or whatever, because if they saw these reports, particularly the red ones, uh, they wouldn't stomach, they wouldn't countenance nuclear power. And because this group, this INPO, is a, a private or, industry organization, they can't be accessed by the Freedom of Information Act and so forth. So it's so wrong. Uh, he talked about, well, the NRC always emphasizes how, oh, we have resident inspectors had nuclear plants, watchdogs, where they were monitoring the operations. Well, this engineer who has worked at several nuclear plants, has worked at the Coke and Pepsi historically of nuclear powers, General Electric and Westinghouse. He worked for GE. He said as far as these, these resident inspectors go, they cannot make surprise inspections. Quote from his in the story, the NRC inspectors are not allowed to go into the plant on the, their own. They have to be escorted. The only inspections that can be made are those that come after the NRC inspectors get permission from upper management of the plant. And then the upper management informs those below them that the inspectors are coming. So clean up what the situation is. In some, the inspectors' hands are tied. And he also spoke about what I was speaking about before, this effort to have nuclear plants run for... 60 and 80 years, and this fellow, he had worked at General Electric and knew well of the studies done, the extensive studies done as to how long a nuclear power plant could run before embrittlement and other problems take over. And uh, well, like here's a quote from the story that a nuclear plant can run for 60 years or 80 years. He mentioned to me how how Dominion, one of the companies in the you know, the nuclear business, is trying to get NRC approval to run its two Surrey nuclear plants in Virginia for 80 years. And Exelon, which is the biggest owner of nuclear power plants in the U.S., it's trying to extend the operating licenses of its two peach bottom plants in Pennsylvania to 80 years. And what the engineer tells me is the industry has thrown out the window all the data developed about the lifetime of a nuclear plant. It would ignore the standards to benefit their wallets for greed, with total disregard for the country's safety. And then it goes into the carbon free myth used by nuclear promoters that uh, reactors aren't putting out greenhouse gases, but as the engineer says, this completely ignores the nuclear chain, the cycle of the nuclear power process that begins with the mining of uranium and continues with milling, enrichment, and fabrication of nuclear fuel. And all of this is carbon intensive. And there's so many ways of generating electric power, he says, that are truly carbon-free. So he just went on and on. So I urge listeners to get a chance. Google the piece, Uninformable, Counterpunch. Very devastating, in my view, information.
0: We will, of course, be linking to that article on this week's show so that people can easily find a copy of the article.
3: At an Indian point, he said it's terrific that there's been this agreement to uh, shut down the plants, but uh, he said we all better cross our fingers that there's no disasters involving Indian point, catastrophe involving Indian point in the next three or four years. These are not, these machines are highly, highly dangerous, as in fact all nuclear plants are.
0: It sounds like as with all nuclear reactors, and especially those at Indian Point, we're going to be playing Russian roulette with them, with fingers crossed that nothing goes wrong before they are shut down. But this brings me to another point, and that is that the nuclear industry is not going to go gently into that good night.
1: They're not going to give up on Indian point.
0: And the other reactors that are scheduled for closure in the next 10 years without a fight and a back-end plant. And this is something besides the extension of 20 to 40 years. Where do you see the industry's push going so that they continue to maintain their income stream and build it into the future?
3: The huge problem here isn't just the industry. It's Trump. There was a piece by Bloomberg News last month about uh, the transition team of Donald Trump. This is the headline in Bloomberg News asking for ways to keep nuclear power alive. I think one of the big ways these uh, these bums will try is to discourage the implementation. I mean, don't, you don't have to talk about development anymore. It's safe, clean, green energy we can live with. It's all on the shelves. It just has to be implemented. We have those offshore wind farms, the kind of solar panels that have been spreading all across the country. That has to all just expand it. But You have this Trump administration, which is anti-safe energy, anti-environmental to the hilt. And, of course, the nuclear industry, these nuclear Pinocchios, who have no trouble. They never did lying and lying and lying. But I'd like to bring up, in terms of fighting it, how do you fight it under these circumstances? It sounds so tough. I'm speaking to you, as I mentioned, from Long Island. We beat nuclear power here in a similar way as the folks... A little upstate beat Indian Point. The way the nuclear establishment worked, when nuclear technology, nuclear power first begins, we're talking back in the 50s, what the promoters did with a very agreeable federal government, then there was the Atomic Energy Commission, which grew out of the Manhattan Project, was to preempt states and localities from most of the issues involving nuclear power plants. What we on Long Island figured out was that uh, one of the things that was not preempted was police power. In other words, if the state wants to widen a road and the, the owner of that land doesn't want to sell, the state could, through eminent domain, acquire that property. So what happened is in 1985, the Long Island Power Act was passed, which provided that through eminent domain, if the Long Island Lighting Company, that was the utility, didn't give up its Shoreham Nuclear Power Plant, which was in all the uh, the documents filed called the Shoreham Nuclear Power Station 1. There was to be two more at that site, four to the east at Jamesport, and several in between. Again, seven to 11 nuclear plants on Long Island. Long Island was to be turned into a, in the jargon of the promoters of nuclear at the time, a nuclear park. (laughs) <laughs> what, that, that was what they called it—a nuclear park. It would be kind of like it would be kind of like a, a, an East Coast U.S. version of Fukushima, because in Fukushima Daiichi there's six nuclear plants, and below there's Fukushima Daiini with three, a cluster of nuclear plants. Then, in any case, what we on Long Island—the Safe Energy activists, environmentalists, public officials so who had some brains and conscience. And, in fact, Mario Cuomo, Governor Andrew Cuomo's father, former governor, was involved. The use of eminent domain, that's something that couldn't be preempted. We'd use eminent domain to eliminate, this was what the Long Island Power Act says, unless the Long Island Lighting Company ends its nuclear plans, shuts down Shoreham forgets about all these other nuclear power plants, we, the state of New York, will, through eminent domain, have the power to seize the assets of this corporation and eliminate it. And LUCO gave up. They gave up for a dollar. They gave the Shoreham plant, which went through several months of problem-riddled, low-powered testing, to the state. It's now sitting there in Shoreham, just a hulk of concrete. It's been gutted in terms of its nuclear innards. We won. There's no nuclear power on Long Island. Long Island is nuclear free. And not only the LILCO nuclear plants, but LILCO's partners in this nuclear park venture was one of the national nuclear laboratories called Brookhaven National Laboratory, intimately tied. In fact, the chairman, chief executive officer, and president of the utility, LILCO, in the last 15 or so years of LILCO's existence, was William Catacasinos, the former assistant director at Brookhaven National Laboratory. What the folks upstate did, what Schneiderman, the attorney general did, what Andrew Cuomo now offers joined in, was they knew preemption, they knew that things continue in nuclear with the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission and the Department of Energy working hand-in-hand with the nuclear industry. We would see license extensions for the two Indian in Point Plans. So, what they zeroed in on in particularly was what's called a Speedy's permit. Speedies permit is a state pollution discharge permit. And they moved to deny energy its state license, its speedy's permit. These plants, I mean a nuclear plant needs massive amounts of coolant, a million gallons a minute going in and going out. As a result, two point five billion gallons of water is discharged from the Indian Point facility every day. And further, there's an entrapment situation, so just zillions of fish are destroyed. Furthermore, the Indian Point plants have been sending radioactive poisons into the Hudson River. And so the state said no speedies permit. And that was a real problem with Entergy. It couldn't operate, it knew it couldn't operate. Without a state permit. The state of New York did sort of like what we on Long Island did work around the preemption, and finally, energy gave up. And then, the other very big reason, which has to be noted beyond the getting around preemption, was that these days, nuclear power, besides being dirty and dangerous, doesn't compete with, well, uh, I'm not going to certainly advocate gas from fracking. That's a horror in and of itself but with safe, clean, green solar energy and and wind power. And for our region, offshore wind is the thing. So entergy seeing the bottom line numbers, it gave up. And that's a kind of, think, a lesson for people all around the country as we enter a very dark tunnel with the Trump administration, how these battles were won upstate New York and downstate here in Long Island by getting around the federal industry juggernaut.
0: There's a point that got skipped. We're talking about eminent domain, but right. never explained how eminent domain stopped Shoreham.
3: Eminent domain stopped Shoreham through the Long Island Power Act of 1985, which essentially is based on eminent domain.
0: My knowledge of eminent domain is if the government wants a piece of land... Even if you've owned it, it's been in your family, whatever, the government gets to take that piece of land on their own terms. Right. And how did that actually impact it?
3: How it worked, I mean, the the folks who developed this strategy, one of them you should interview, he's still around, Irving Alike. He is the author of the New York State Environmental Bill of Rights. Irving led a group called Citizens to Replace Lilco, and Irving was key in figuring out how you'd be able to get around the preemption through the use of eminent domain by passing a law, which was passed, the Long Island Power Act, in 1985, which says that if the utility, the Long Island Lighting Company, persisted in its Shoreham nuclear plant, which it had completed, but never went into commercial operation because of this, and persisted with its other nuclear projects, the many of them, the state would move in and, under eminent domain, seize the assets of the Long Island Lighting Company, seize Power Access, the stock, seize every pole they have up there. I mean, just eliminate the company as a corporate entity. And thus, even though LUCO at that point was headed by a pro-NUCO beyond belief, William Catacasinos, former assistant director of Brookhaven National Laboratory, set up essentially in 1947 by the Atomic Energy Commission here in Long Island to do atomic research, but to develop civilian uses of nuclear power, nuclear energy, from uh, nuclear-powered airplanes to food irradiation to nuclear-powered rockets. I mean, they were looking the Manhattan Project, becomes the Atomic Energy Commission in 1946, and they're looking for ways to perpetuate nuclear technology. They could build more bombs, and they did. 30,000 atomic and hydrogen bombs, what else could we do with nuclear technology to perpetuate this vested interests of jobs and contracts and laboratories that were uh, developed during World War II? And out of all this comes also the notion, what a notion of using fission, using the splitting of the atom to boil water, to make steam, to turn a generator, to produce electricity the most dangerous way to produce electricity ever conceived in the end because of the long island power act the nuclear power plants that loco wanted to build and the one it built forget it all over loco gave up and then also through continual citizen activism the two reactors and there were two dirty reactors at Brookhaven National Laboratory, subsequently were also shut down. Both reactors had been leaking for years tritium into the groundwater of Long Island, which, I mean, Long Island is one of these areas of having a sole source aquifer. The people of Long Island, millions of people who live here dependent the water underground for their drinking water, for their potable water, and this, this National Nuclear Laboratory for years, it turned out, had been allowing tritium to be discharged from its high flux beam reactor, it's an experimental reactor but a big one, and a, and a smaller reactor. Those ended up shut down. So now Long Island is nuclear free. I mean the, the notion, the myth that you can't fight city hall, that's a myth created by city hall. You can fight city hall and you can win. And even even in dark times, I mean, the fight against Shoram and Lilco's nuclear power scheme, the many nuclear plants, that went on during the the time of Reagan, the first George Bush. These were hard times uh, politically because of the nature of the people in the White House. And now we're going to have, I fear, as dark a time, if not even if you can imagine, darker. And if the people organize, if the people act, if the people resist they can win. And, and just, just let me add as a footnote, in the fight against Shoram, there were various organizations with different strategies. The Shared Alliance, for example, it was committed to civil disobedience and direct action. And the result, there was demonstrations in which, uh, one demonstration, 600 people were arrested. Thousands took part. On the other hand, there were those who felt what was important, the Shoreham Opponents Coalition felt, what we have to do is function politically. We have to get rid of those politicians who are in the pockets of the nuclear industry and, and or the utility out of office. We have to get good people elected. That was their strategy. There was all sorts of groups with all sorts of strategies, but in a big tent approach, they came together on Shoreham. As in a big tent approach, the folks along the Hudson River have gotten together, Riverkeeper and Scenic Hudson and Clearwater. The many organizations that have been fighting these two horrors on the Hudson uh, have gotten together and with the support of the state of New York and uh, with the governor have gotten this agreement to, and again, I wish those nukes would be, and they should be, shut down now, shut down yesterday, shut down 40 years ago, never allowed to operate. But in any case, we have now an agreement for them to be shut down. In terms of a
0: big tent approach with the different strategies that are out there, what do you suggest that those of us who oppose nuclear around the country, and really this is around the world if people can apply these strategies to their local areas, what do we need to be doing now to take from our history of success and move it into this dark time, as you labeled it, and I agree, that we are now facing?
3: Well, I think you have to act. You've got to move nationally, globally, nationally, and locally. The old uh, slogan was uh, active today or radioactive tomorrow. It's uh, more pertinent than ever, and there's very wonderful, excellent, speaking on a national level, organizations that people should get involved with and support. Uh, I'm on the board of an organization called Beyond Nuclear. Just go to beyondnuclear.org, read about what it's doing, and get involved with Beyond Nuclear or support Beyond Nuclear. An organization I'm also on the board on, on is the Radiation and Public Health Project. Uh, Joe Mangana was the executive director, and their focus is uh, you, you don't actually need a catastrophe for people to die because of nuclear power nuclear power plants discharge, release, let out nuclear poisons all the time. And the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission says, fine, those are permissible emissions of these radioactive poisons. As a result, there are cancer clusters around nuclear power plants. In fact, Joe is right now involved in an analysis of how many lives will be saved with the uh, shutdown of the Indian Point plants, because there's been serious thyroid cancer clusters in that area and so forth another wonderful organization and i've been on its board is the nuclear information and resource service nears just go to nears.org terrific group long led by the late michael marriott other groups friends of the earth greenpeace i hate to miss i mean there's so many on on a national level and on a local level, because you got to function, you got to act locally, as well as, I believe, nationally and internationally. These are issues of life and death. To end nuclear power is so critical. It's so vital. Indeed, my first book on nuclear power, which is entitled Cover-Up, What You Are Not Supposed to Know About Nuclear Power, begins with the Bible. I begin cover-up with... I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. That's Deuteronomy. And with nuclear technology, that's what we face. This is a matter of life and death, and we must choose. We must choose and act for life. Carol,
0: you're always such a source of profound information and insight. It's a privilege to have you on the show, and we're going to have to do it much more
3: often. It's always a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for joining us and being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Award-winning journalist Carl Grossman. We'll have links up to his article, the anti-nuclear activist groups he mentioned, plus a link to his website where you can download a free PDF of his book. That's right, free. Cover up what you are not supposed to know about nuclear power. Don't even think about it. Just go carlgrossman.com and do it. Click on the books link. All that will be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 295. Activist shout-out. In late January, the U.S. House of Representatives passed legislation authored by Bob Latta, who's a Republican from Ohio, and Jerry McInerney, a Democrat from California, to provide regulatory certainty, certainty, for the development of advanced nuclear energy technology. In fact, it's called the Advanced Nuclear Energy Technology Act of 2017. It's House Bill 590 So go to the automatic dial that you now have programmed into your cell phone and contact your senators in Washington. Tell them to oppose House Bill 590. And once you've done that, share it with everybody on your social media. Who dreamed that we would ever live with the phone numbers of our senators in the frequently called numbers on our cell phones? Here's today's final thought. When Carl Grossman talked about the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, I got a chill. In over five and a half years of producing nuclear hot seat, not once have I heard this group mentioned. They obviously keep a very low profile. Yet I can't help but think that the workings of INPO, as it's called, holds the answers to many questions about how the nuclear industry gets away with what it gets away with. The problem is obtaining documentation to understand their focus, their actions, and have the proof. That's because it's a trade organization. So you can't get their info through the Freedom of Information Act. So this is an open call. Hey, anonymous! Yeah, that's right, you, anonymous! You know who you are! Help us out. We need documents to help us understand what's going on. We want the info on Inpo. Somehow, they're a part of what's holding the nuclear industry immune from the consequences of its actions, as this industry holds governments and great swaths of the planet hostage to its greed and waste. So go get them. Secure us some documentation and get it to us. Get it to Carl Grossman, me, Beyond Nuclear, Nears, Greg Pallist, whoever. And for all of you who are not in Anonymous, please share this information or a link to this episode over the Internet so that through our shared six degrees of separation, it will cross the path of they whose names shall not be spoken. Activist to activist, we need your help. Deal? This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 14, 2017. Material from this week's program has been researched and compiled from SantaFeNewMexican.com, Informable.com, UtilityDive.com, BostonGlobe.com, TheGuardian.com, Bloomberg.com, Asahi.com, MiningAwareness.wordpress.com, Nuclear-News.net, IndependentAustralia.net, FukuLeaks.org, FocusTaiwan.tw, Department of Homeland Security, The Times UK, Paul Dorfman, Bristol University, Kalinis Energy, Your Radiation Mapping, balona.org, European com. with my thanks to our intrepid European reporter Sean McGee. Then there's the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, thanks to Erica Gray, and the big hearted water and planet protectors and peaceful warriors of heart who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook, which you are all invited to join, like, and share your posts there with your loved ones and with those people who love nukes and you just want to get them angry. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevy and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder to have heart and take a moment to send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart, there you go again, of the art of communicating, reminding you that when the emergency runoff channel of the Oroville Dam in California was discovered to be in danger of collapse, 180,000 California residents were told to evacuate immediately, leading to complete and utter gridlock, panic, gas stations drained of gas, emergency shelters overflowing, and a terrified population. So what makes anyone think that emergency evacuation plans for getting away from a nuclear reactor accident is even possible? Think about it. And once you have, you'll realize that you've just had your latest nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat